Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 13. Uh, this Wednesday, by the way, and you heard about it in, in, in the know, uh, this Wednesday, January 15th, we're going to resume our Capshaw Academy. And uh, this is our Wednesday night offering where we uh, do a 10 or 12 week elective covering a specific topic. Last semester, which was in the fall, we looked at uh, resolving conflict biblically. And I was so blessed by the, the exchange, the back and forth, the questions. This Wednesday, it's going to be a new series, a new, a new study. Um, it's going to be called, How Then Shall We Live? Biblical Christian Ethics. And so we're going to look at how do we make decisions, determine right or wrong, in some of these very, very difficult areas that we're faced with, particularly in the areas of life, death, and sexuality. So we're going to look at that. We're going to answer some of the questions that... Uh, perhaps you've been asked that may be plaguing you, um, end-of-life issues, uh, uh, issues on sexual morality. For example, how do we know uh, when it's the right time to, to pull the plug, so to speak, to stop providing uh, support? Um, is abortion always wrong? Um, what should I do if, if I've been invited to go to a, quote, gay wedding? Um, how do I deal with some of these things, uh, some of these questions, um, is forbidding sex outside of marriage, is that passe? Is it something we uh, should still uh, do? How should Christians practice their freedom in Christ? So we're taking a couple of weeks and look at uh, the freedom that we enjoy in Christ and how uh, that is to be celebrated. And I think even of uh, greater or at least equal importance, we're going to ask the questions, um, what does it look like to be a gospel-saturated community as it relates to dealing with those and engaging those who think very differently than we do, ethically and morally and so on. And what does it look like to love? How do we show love? And what does it look like to love those who think and, and act in ways that we believe are ungodly or unbiblical? And discerning what love is is actually a theological exercise. If we don't look at love, we don't understand love in, in light of who God is and who we are in relationship to Him, then it's always a moving target. And we are, our definitions are determined by kind of cultural whims and, and so on. We want to know what, is, what does God say about love and how do we demonstrate that love? Uh, in fact, John the Evangelist wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus himself says in John 13, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning called No Greater Love, and we're going to be continuing to work through John's gospel. It was one year ago, almost today, January 13th, uh, 2019, we began this study in John's gospel, and we are going to wrap it up, um, at least for the most part, right around the time of Easter of this year. Um, but we're entering into, now as far as the text goes, really the final 36 hours, if you will, of Jesus' life on earth. And what's fascinating is that John the Evangelist actually spends seven chapters of his gospel covering the final weekend of Jesus' life on earth. And that's because there's so much for us to see and learn and understand about Jesus uh, in these last chapters of John. Let's, uh, we're going to look at this morning, John 13, 1 through 20. Let's begin uh, by looking at John 13, 1 through 11. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. 
during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and all things uh, had come from God, he was going back to God, uh, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. For he knew or he said, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus has just a few hours left on the earth, and he's in this very intimate setting. Kind of imagine being with your closest friends, the people you've spent the most amount of time with. And he's with the disciples, and he has something he wants to communicate to them, really illustrate to them regarding the depth of his love for them. Um, verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had to come to depart out of this world to the Father, yet having loved his own, what we'll find out later, his chosen ones, the one that the Father had given him, he would love them to the end. That is to say, Jesus would love them, his own, for the entirety of his life, even to death, with a love that is rooted in sacrifice. And now he would demonstrate that sacrificial love by washing his disciples' feet, now, you may recall, we've seen this exercise done before, just a few chapters, of, uh, chapters ago, when Mary washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And what I pointed out to you then was that this, this idea of washing someone else's feet in, in first century uh, Judaism was actually a, a, a very humiliating thing. It was an act that was reserved for kind of the lowest of the low, the servants, the slaves. And, and this is because, of course, in the first century, everybody wore sandals and um, as people would walk along the road, they would get dust and dirt and, and animals would roam freely. And so there would sometimes, of course, naturally be, be animal excrement that would become part of the sandal or attached to the sandal. And so it was a very disgusting thing. It was a very belittling thing, a very humiliating thing. And yet Jesus would wash all the disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas, one that Jesus knew was going to betray him. John tells us that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And this is a, the New Testament is mostly written in Greek. This is an interesting Greek construction that has caused a lot of debate over the centuries. What does that actually mean? Did Judas, or did Satan rather control Judas's mind? The answer is probably no. John has already told us in, in chapter 12 that, uh, that Judas refused to believe in Jesus as the one sent by God. So Satan sees Judas as his best option, as a pawn, to deploy against Jesus. Several weeks ago, we talked about the devil and who the devil is and the devil's influence. And, and I made the point that the devil is not everywhere, so he's not omnipresent. There's only one devil. Nor is the devil omniscient. In other words, he doesn't know everything. He doesn't see everything. He can't read our minds and so on. But he is incredibly savvy and he's very observant. He sees our patterns, 
And he picks up on our weaknesses and our sin tendencies, and he exploits those areas, which is what he did with Judas. He saw Judas's greed, and he recognized that as a way to exploit Judas. But for those of us who are in Christ, the devil can only seduce and torment from the outside, as it were, never from within. Those who have been sanctified and set apart or dwelled by the Holy Spirit, the comforter that we're going to read about in a few weeks, and they can never be inhabited by the devil, nor can he control their minds. Now, they can, be, of course, be influenced and fooled and, and mis, misled and duped. And this is why Jesus would say to his own followers when, when he answers their question, how shall we pray? He said, pray this way, lead us, Father, lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So here we have Jesus who has his closest companions and then one who will betray him. And even though he knows this about Judas, he still washes Judas' feet. The one who would become really his betrayer, of course, and his enemy. And I think it's a very convicting thing. It was for me, at least, as I was studying, to think, how do I regard my enemies? You know, in light of Jesus' example, Jesus humbles himself, washes Judas's feet. As he begins to wash all the disciples' feet, Peter says, no, this is not going to happen, Jesus. There's no way you're going to wash my feet. May it never be, never wash my feet. Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no fellowship with me. Now, on the surface, that seems really strange, doesn't it? I mean, what's the big deal here? Is Jesus really concerned about the cleanliness of his disciples' feet? Uh, We know that that's not the case. Jesus doesn't care about how clean their feet are. The foot washing that Jesus does is an illustration of the spiritual cleansing that he will accomplish on the cross. And to reject that foot washing, to reject the humiliation of the Savior, is to reject the cleansing power of Jesus' cross work. The humbling sacrifice that Jesus makes here in washing the disciples' feet is meant to point to and symbolize the greater humiliation that he will soon endure by his sacrifice on the cross. And the washing of the feet is meant to picture the total cleansing that he provides by his death on the cross. What Jesus is saying here is, look, it's not the cleanliness of your feet that matters, right? That's not the issue. But if you're unwilling to be washed by me, for whatever reason, you'll never be truly clean. 20th century Scottish theologian and professor Archibald Hunter writes this, the deeper meaning then is that there is no place in his fellowship for those who have not been cleansed by his atoning death. This episode dramatically symbolizes the truth enunciated in 1 John 1.7. We are being cleansed from every sin by the blood of Jesus. Now here's the first point I want you to see from this passage. Complete and total forgiveness is ours in Christ. But we must allow ourselves to be cleansed in order to receive it. There's a great scene we looked at a few weeks ago in John 8 where Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And what he means by that is that that those who have not been set free by the Son, those who have not put their faith in Jesus, they're enslaved by sin and they're under the condemnation of sin. It's kind of like we sing the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, we say to the rock, to Jesus, be of sin the double cure. 
save from wrath and make me pure. Those who have not trusted in Christ are under the condemnation of sin, but also the rule or the tyranny of sin. But what Jesus offers is actually salvation from both. What Jesus does when he washes us clean is he absolves us from all guilt. No longer do we have to live with guilt. He removes even the slightest stain of offense. He saves us from the wrath of God. He presents us as perfect and beautiful to the Father. He rids us of every ounce of shame. He frees us from our anxious thoughts. Am I good enough? When Jesus washes clean, he raises the dead to life, empowers them to holy living. Now, that's the sort of cleansing that Christ offers for those who will receive it. Now, I think we have to ask the question then, why would we not allow ourselves? Why would someone not allow himself or herself to be cleansed? Now, for Peter, it was because he didn't really understand what was coming up. He didn't understand the cross. He didn't understand even still the suffering that Christ would endure. But I think on this side of the cross for us, I think it's two primary reasons we, we wouldn't allow a person would not allow himself or herself to be cleansed. And one reason is that we don't we fail to see ourselves as actually needing forgiveness. We don't really see that we need forgiveness. I had a fascinating discussion with my dad just a couple weeks ago over Christmas break and Ever since my parents were divorced when I was five, I, I talked to my dad typically once a year at Christmas, usually in person. We'll occasionally text each other. But we, this was December, you know, two weeks ago, December 29th or whatever. We're at my sister's house, and, and we're all making uh, the, the make-your-own-pizzas. It was a big family gathering, you know, exchange of presents and so on. And my dad kind of cornered me. You know, the, now, my dad, is, if you've been around, you've heard a couple stories. My dad, always been an atheist, doesn't believe in God. He had this tragic accident in a factory. He worked at Pillsbury where he almost lost his life. And so he, he kind of has transitioned to a bit of an agnostic. He's like, I don't really know. I don't have any idea. But he cornered me and, and he asked me, he said, hey, John, would, would, would you be willing to baptize me? And I was fascinated by this. I mean, the first thing that popped in my head, which is actually what I said out loud, was why? Like, why, why would you want to be baptized? And I wasn't being a smart aleck. I was Again, this is a person who's never expressed any interest in the things of God. In fact, really kind of at times even mocked the very existence of God. And I said, why, why would you want me to baptize you? And he goes, well, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. I said, well, wh why do you feel like it's the right thing to do? He goes, well, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I feel like I, I want to do something to, to make sure that I'm, if there is a God, that I'm right with him. And I said, well, the thing is, baptism is actually... It's an outward demonstration of the faith that God has wrought in us by Christ. We're, we're buried in the likeness of his death. We turn from our sins. We're, we're buried with him, and he raises us to new life. And so unless you put your faith in Christ, it, it doesn't really make sense. He said, well, my religion has always been the golden rule. You do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, I've been a good person. I help those people around me. I'm always eager to serve if someone has a need. And he said, I feel like I'm, I'm a good person. And I said, yeah, Dad, but how do you know what's good enough? He said, you know, I guess that's, I don't really know. I don't know what's good enough. He said, I just feel like if I can do, in this course, you probably heard this a hundred times from people. I just feel like if I can do more good than I do bad, then that'll be enough. And I said, well, here's the thing, though. 
The Bible tells us that it's not being good that gets us to God. It's actually perfection. You want to be right with God, you've got to be per- perfect in every way. And because we're imperfect and we fail, God actually sends his son to live that perfect life, obeying all of God's commands, so that when we put our faith in him, he actually credits that righteousness to us, so we're perfect before him. My dad said, well, I don't know about any of that. I don't, I don't get any of that. And I said, well, would you be willing if I send you a book to, you know, maybe we can call once a month and we can talk through the chapters. Would you be willing? He said, yeah, I'd be absolutely willing to do that. So, so that's something I'm going to follow up on. But what I discover with my dad as I'm talking to him, and, you know, these are not easy conversations with anybody, but when you're having with your own father and he brings it up and there's an awkward, everybody else sort of stopped opening presents, just looked at us, stopped making pizza and stared at us. So it was, a, it was a horribly awkward. But I have this conversation where I realize my dad doesn't really believe He needs to be forgiven because he is looking at his own righteousness comparatively. I mean, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I know these people around me, they're not that good. So one reason we would not allow ourselves to be cleansed is because we don't really believe that we need to be forgiven. Now, there's another reason. A second reason might be the perception that our sins are actually too great to be forgiven. I was talking to a woman one time came up to me after I preached a sermon, and I would later discover by her own admission she'd had multiple abortions. And she said, I hear what you're saying about forgiveness, but it can't possibly apply to me. Heartbroken. I mean, so it was just such a heartbreaking conversation. Similarly, I had a young man who came up to me, again, at the end of a different service, and he was beside himself with guilt, and he kept looking at the floor while he would talk with me. He was married to a young woman. They were expecting their first child, but he shared with me he was constantly struggling with same-sex lust, and he had even acted out on some of those lusts multiple times. And he said, I I have no business being in here here worshiping. I'm so ashamed to be here. Well, the Scriptures teach us there's no sin beyond God's ability to forgive. In fact, look at verse 10. Such a beautiful statement by the Lord Jesus. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, he says, are clean. Jesus says about those who have been cleansed by him, you are completely clean. Of course, the idea is that you've already been bathed, you've already been forgiven. This forgiveness that Jesus offers is once for all. So I could say to the woman who's had multiple abortions, which I did say to her, If you're in Christ, you are completely clean. There's not one stain of guilt on you this morning. And I said to the man who'd fallen multiple times, acted out on sinful desires, I said to him, if you are in Christ, you are completely clean. You have no sinful history with the Lord. There's no condemnation. So trust in God's promises rather than your own conscience, rather than your own performance. He has cleansed you, and so you are completely clean. As Frederick Dale Bruner writes, indeed, it is what we should always be saying to ourselves all day long in our relationship to him, repeating Jesus' words, you are completely clean. It's one way we honor Jesus' will for us, his work on us, and so keep reappropriating his incredibly good news, and so honor Jesus' finished work and our deep privilege of being disciples of this servant, Lord. Now, someone might say, yeah, but... Won't reminding ourselves about this once-for-all forgiveness that we're actually clean, won't that actually promote carelessness or in our obedience or even license to sin? 
And the answer is it never works that way. It never works that way. I know it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. It's paradoxical, whatever you want to say. But it's true. Truly grasping God's love for us as manifested in his son's sacrifice and once for all forgiveness actually stirs our hearts toward greater forgiveness, greater obedience, greater love, greater worship. Now, this is one reason the story unfolds the way that it does. Look at verses 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, I made the point, well, really throughout my ministry, but also especially through John's gospel, that the primary message of the Christian faith is not what God calls us to do, but what God has done for us in Christ. And this is so incredibly important because if we miss this, we actually miss everything. If we believe that the Christian faith is ultimately and fundamentally about what we're supposed to do, we end up with just another world religion that is impossible to save. But if we understand that Christian faith is about what God has done in Jesus Christ, that changes everything. So we communicate this at every level, in our sermons, our song selection, in our children's ministries, in our student ministries, that Christianity is the story of a one-sided rescue a God who comes to the aid, a God who comes to the deliverance of an undeserving, wicked people, those who are his enemies. So we focus on what God has done. But this doesn't mean that we're not called to do things. In fact, here Jesus says in, in verse 15, I've given you an example to follow that you should do these things. And then, as we'll see in a moment in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What's the example that Jesus calls us to follow? Is it that we should be washing each other's feet? If that's the case, we're in trouble, aren't we? How many of you have washed somebody else? Actually, don't raise your hand because it takes some explaining. And we, we, don't, we're not really, we don't do a lot of washing each other's feet, do we? Well, what does Jesus mean there? It's not this exact exercise that Jesus is commanding. It's broader than that. Jesus is talking about humbling ourselves and sacrificing for the sake of serving others. Here's our second point. Every believer has been uniquely gifted and humbly served by the Savior in order to humbly serve others. So if you're in Christ this morning, you put your faith in Christ... You have been uniquely gifted by Christ to serve His church. It's for the benefit of the church. And your gift set is actually different than your neighbor's gift set. So you're, you're, the way that the, the Spirit of God has, has gifted you is different than the person next to you. So look at your neighbor and say, you're different. And I mean it in a good way. I've always, you know, that this is what all the... All the cool preachers that do, they always say, look at your neighbor and say this. I always want to try that. Um, but you are actually different than your neighbor. You have a different gift set. And your gifts are essential for 
the building up, the edification of the church. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I was really kind of wrestling with this. Um, as an object, uh, exam- object lesson, I thought about having the ushers hand each person as they walked in a Skittle. Now, you know, if you're, if you're a candy fan, you know there are a lot of different types of Skittles, right? You have the, the original wild berry, tropical, sour, rainforest. You have now we have dipped Skittles, so all this thing. And what I thought about doing is having each person receive a Skittle, and then when I got to this point in my sermon, say, okay, I want you to hold up your, your Skittle, and I want you to look to see how your Skittle is different than every other person's, person's in the room. Um, but then I thought, if candle wax is hard to get out of the floor after our Christmas Eve service, how much worse a hundred smashed Skittles. So I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Now, I put all the Skittles. I bought the Skittles. I put them in a bowl. So I want you to look at the, you can see the Skittles. So now this is all the different types. This is the tropical and sour and all of them. And there are all these different colors of Skittles, all these different flavors of Skittles. And so what I want you to understand is when it comes to your spiritual gift, everyone has a different flavor combination. So everybody has something unique to offer. And it's all by God's infinitely wise design for the good of the body of believers. And if you're not using your gift, if you're not using your gift to humbly serve others, following the example and instructions of Jesus, not only is Jesus dishonored, but the church suffers. The church suffers. The unique flavor that you provide is missing. Peter, the same guy who argues with Jesus here in John 13, says in one of his letters that we are stewards of God's varied grace. So there's something that you bring to the table in a unique combination that nobody else brings. So this might be a good time to think, how am I serving the body of Christ? How am I using my unique gift combination imparted to me by the Spirit? How am I using that for the benefit of my brothers and sisters in Christ? But when I say that, I also realize we will only employ our gifts out of love and in the service of others. We'll only use our time, our gifts, our talents. We'll only make those sacrifices when the reality of what God has done for us sinks in, which happens as the Spirit makes that impression within us. Now, please take note of this. Before Jesus asks his disciples to do anything, he demonstrates to them the love that he has for them, and what he has done and will do for them. This is a pattern we see throughout the Scriptures. Before God tells us to forgive, he forgives us and he enables us to forgive. Before God tells us to love our enemies, he demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Before God tells us to think upon things that are pure, he declares us pure through the perfect record of Jesus. Before God tells us to go and reach the nations, He actually comes to us. This is the incarnation when we celebrate at Christmas. He comes to us as our rescuer, our deliverer. Before God commands us to serve, He serves us by sending His Son to suffer the humiliation of being ostracized, beaten, betrayed, ridiculed, mocked, and ultimately killed. And the reason for that order, God doing for us before he tells us to do, 
is because the only power and lasting motivation to do what God tells us to do is actually the recognition, the supernatural understanding of what God has done for us. What we're talking about here is the imperatives always flow out of the indicatives. And here's what I mean. An indicative, you English majors, indicates something that's been done. An indicative is a reference to what God has done. Everything the Scriptures tell us that God has done, all the promises of God that are yes in Jesus Christ, those refer to the indicatives. An imperative just tells us what God tells us to do. It is a command. And the Bible has plenty of both, right? But there's a divine order to these things. The indicatives come first. What God has done for us always comes before what God tells us to do. Now, to be sure, we need the commands. The commands of God are wonderful and perfect and right and indispensable to our daily lives as Christians. They show us what a faith-filled, spirit-empowered life looks like. The gospel is central. We make that point all the time. But the gospel is not the only thing we need. We also need wisdom, law, correction, instructions, and commands. But we have to always remember there's no hope in the commands. There's no power in the commands. We can tell people do this and don't do that until we're blue in the face. It will not change anyone's heart. It will only lead to frustration and emptiness if not accompanied by the good news of the gospel. There's no hope in the law. We obey the commands because we have been loved by God and we love Him in return. As we learn more and more to recognize and rejoice in God's love for us in Christ, His incredible generosity toward us through His Son, the completeness of His forgiveness, the profundity of His submission, as we understand those things, obedience then becomes a heartfelt desire rather than an obligation, which, by the way, is the only kind of obedience that Jesus is interested in. Simply put, we obey because we love, and we love because we have been loved by God in Christ. We serve because we have been served. Jesus Christ has humbled himself for our sake all the way to the cross. Now, we want, of course, we want life change in our own lives. We want it in our preaching. We want it in our ministry. We want to see transformation We want a culture of service. I I love to see so many people in this church serving one another with their gifts. It's such a beautiful and God-honoring thing. And I would love to see every single person serving. Now, everybody doesn't have to serve in the nursery. Everybody doesn't have to serve in, in security team, whatever. But every single person using their gifts for the benefit of the church. We want to see that sort of transformation. But we must realize that only the indicatives, only what God has done for us in Christ has the power for life change. The Bible shows us, and this is throughout the whole Bible, if we're actually willing to trust in the indicatives, what God has done for us, believe and proclaim what He has done, our lives will change, people's lives will be changed, This is not some trickle-down preachonomics I'm talking about. This is actually Christ being present in His Word and active in His people as the indicative is preached. This is the example of Jesus. This is the example of the apostles. This is the example of the church fathers. This is the example of the reformers. 
Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and author, says this, The apostles do not make the mistake that's often made in Christian ministry. For the apostles, the indicatives are more powerful than the imperatives in gospel preaching. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's back because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. Now let's apply this to our various spheres, the church, the home, and our marriage. What does it mean for us as a church? Well, here's what it means. We're going to major, we're going to major on what God has done. Are we going to talk about the commands? Of course we are. Absolutely. But we're going to major on what God has done. That will be our greatest emphasis at every level, sermons, classes, lectures, songs, small groups, students, senior adults, children, all those things. We're going to, yes, we're going to talk about the commands, but we're going to major on, we're going to emphasize what God has done. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, if there was a law that could give life, then righteousness would come by the law. But the law, no, the law condemns. The law accuses. The gospel offers life and freedom by God's Spirit. Well, how about, how about in our homes? Well, here's a diagnostic question. Is your home characterized by, characterized by, now of course every home has these things, but is it characterized by law, demand, expectation, a pervasive prove your worth mentality? If you behave well, then you'll get this. If your grades are good, then you'll get this. If you eat your greens, then you'll get this. Is your home characterized by conditionality, if-then statements? Or is your home a place where you regularly declare and demonstrate your love, regardless of your kid's performance? If you want your kids to behave well on the outside, you know, just outward conformity, you might get away with the former approach. But if you want your kids to know you love them, if you want your kids to love you in return, if you want when your kids to get older to see them again, your house should be characterized by that love, by grace, by, by that gospel effect. How about in our marriages? Well, if you want a marriage that's filled with extreme highs and extreme lows, and a marriage that's characterized by constant sort of wandering, mystery, how does, this, how does she feel about me? How does he feel about me? How's this going to go? I don't know if I can say it. If you want to a marriage where you have to tiptoe around and walk on eggshells and you never really know kind of where you stand, then make your marriage one that's characterized by conditional acceptance. You take out the trash, I'll do this for you. You're nice to me, you say you compliment me, I'll compliment you. You do what I ask you to do, I'll do what you ask me to do. One that's characterized by conditional acceptance. That's a culture of law. It's not a culture of grace. That's a culture of ungrace. And it breeds suspicion, distrust, misery, a lack of joy, a lack of love. Please hear me. There's a place for commands. There's a place for demands. Ask my kids if I ever make demands of them. Yeah, there's a place for demands. There's a place for instructions. Here Jesus says to his own disciples, follow my example. Do as I have done. Serve one another humbly and sacrificially. But before he issues a command, he illustrates the type of love 
that will lead him not only to wash their feet, a love that will take him to the cross whereby he completely and fully cleanses them. He will cleanse them from within. He washes their feet as a picture of the full and complete cleansing that he will provide by the shedding of his blood. He will die for their sins. Now that's some kind of love. Udo Chanel, who's a professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, writes, God's gift of love, enacted in the foot washing, enables the love of disciples for one another. The indicative of salvation enables the imperative of ethic. Scotty Smith, who's a pastor and scholar in Nashville, says it this way, Jesus is our substitute before he is our example. The imperative to wash one another's feet flows out of the indicative of Jesus washing us by his grace. Are we free and lovingly compelled to serve one another? Of course we are, but only as a gospel reenactment of the grace that we have received. And when such an expression is accompanied by a lifestyle, lifestyle servant love, ritual without humble recognition of and response to the reality of grace is vanity, only fueling sentimentality and self-righteousness. All that to say, Christ has served us fully and completely. He has humbled himself. The God of the universe, the God who made the world and everything in it, he humbles himself to the lowest place imaginable, the scandalous death on a cross so that we could be completely forgiven, completely clean. And our reason, the only reasonable response then is, of course, to love and worship, but also to serve our neighbor. Now let's look at the final section, verses 16 through 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if what? If you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. And listen to this phrase. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So as Jesus continues to explain the basis for his command to serve others, he takes it even a step further. He anchors his imperative, follow my example, in this indicative, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. And we cannot ignore this, can we? This has been a theme that has surfaced multiple times in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, in John chapter 6, in John chapter 10, it will show up most clearly and arrestingly in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Remember John 10, Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He doesn't say you're not of my sheep because you don't believe. This is a reference to God choosing who he will rescue from condemnation, wrath, and eternal separation. Now, here's our final point. Jesus' act of cleansing follows his more foundational act of choosing. If you have believed in Jesus Christ this morning, if you've turned from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it is because before the foundation of the world, before God even fashioned the world, before he even said, let there be light and there was light, before any of that took place, 
God chose you to be his own possession, to be his own child. And that should make our hearts sing with joy, erupt with confidence. It should also deepen our love for God and strengthen our desire to serve neighbor. So often I think the doctrine set forth in the New Testament, like predestination, election, God's sovereignty, they become fodder for debates, even infighting within the church, but that's not what they were intended for. These doctrines are meant to comfort the believer. They're actually meant for our comfort. They're meant for our good. The fact that God has chosen you is meant to comfort you. Now, how does it comfort us? Well, it tells us we didn't just sort of stumble into our salvation one day, and one day we may stumble out of it. No, it says before we were born, before you were uh, the apple of your mother's eye, God already lavished his affection on you and said, that one there is mine. This is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring comfort to us. It tells us before we were created, we were actually God's delight. And those he delights in, he doesn't let go. Those he has chosen, he doesn't let get destroyed. He doesn't let walk away. He doesn't let them fall away. One of the things we see so often in the Gospels, and we'll see it again very soon, is just how often the disciples appeal to Jesus choosing them as their source of confidence. The point being, in the midst of a world where you feel overwhelmed and, and maybe, maybe people are against you and, and maybe you feel ill-equipped for what God has called you to do, maybe you feel outnumbered by your own family, this God that chose you, this God who chose you, will see you through. You can count on it. You, you can trust in it. This God who chose you before you are born, He's not going to let you fall away. He's not going to let you wander off. He loves you so much that he will keep you. He will preserve your faith. He will deepen your love for him. And he will continue to strengthen you and hold you close to himself as he allows you in his sovereignty to go through suffering, to go through trials, to go through difficulties. But all of those things God means for his people to strengthen them and to enable them to persevere and to keep them close to himself. Before God tells us to do, he tells us what's been done. In just a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's table together, which is a beautiful demonstration, a reenactment, if you will, of that great dinner, that supper, that, that event where Jesus actually revealed to his disciples all the suffering that he would endure. And when we take of the bread, we take of the cup, what we're saying is that Christianity is not about my sacrifice. It's about his sacrifice, the one who made it possible for us to be cleansed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us much grace this morning, we pray, to receive what you have for us. Give us the ability by your grace and through your spirit to, to understand the height and depth and width and breadth of your love for us in Christ. And may the reality of all that you've done for us in Jesus... Stir our hearts toward humble service, joyful and spontaneous obedience, love for you, love for neighbor, and hearts that are able to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.